Okay, today I'm at the Paddocks in Kensispear with uh, trainer Rod Millman. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today, Mr. Millman. Pleasure. Um, now, this year you've had so far 33 winners and you've generally got an impressive strike rate of 12%. How do you keep it so high? Well, 12%, it's probably doesn't sound that high when you consider the, the big trainers like John Gosling, uh, Willie Haggis, people like that. But of course, they're, they're running a lot of maidens in maidens and those horses are expected to win their first two, uh, one or two races and then often are whisked off to stud. So they have a higher percentage, whereas trainers like myself have mostly handicappers or ordinary horses. I mean, most of my young horses, they're not really good enough to win a maiden, so we have to get them handicapped. So that's three races wasted. And then you, you win the handicaps, and hopefully you'll find a bit of improvement in them as they run on, as they get fitter and more mature. And that's where we get most of our winners. Okay, how many horses can you take here? Uh, we've got 50 boxes here. Okay, now just going back to before we talk about your uh, your training, your father was a, a a trainer, a permit holder. Well, dad was in the car trade, but he was an uh, uh, enthusiastic uh, gambler, horse racing, that sort of thing. We used to race a lot of greyhounds, and um, he had a permit and ran a couple of over hurdles, and then he unfortunately that horse broke down and he bred from it, and the um, he he got a little partnership together and put the yearling into training. With Reg Akerst, and that's where the Reg Akerst uh, bit of my life came came to really. Okay, so you became a an apprentice jockey. Yes, that's right. When I was, I I was always riding ponies as a kid, um, mostly Jim Canners. Didn't do much show jumping, but the Jim Canners led on to pony racing. There used to be a, a flapping circuit in Cornwall called Tintagel, and um, I rode there for two seasons before I went as an apprentice to Reg Akerst. Okay, so then you became an apprentice. You rode five winners. Yeah, five winners. I um, I was lucky. Um, I was quite young. I had my first rides at fifteen, so I was riding races at fifteen. But I didn't ride a winner till I was seventeen, and that was at Ascot. I always joke. I started at the top and gone downhill ever since. That must have been quite tough as an apprentice back in those days. Well, I used to get one pound fifty a week, and you had to do all the odd jobs. Um, with, with in work around the yard in the afternoon when all the other lads were asleep, um, taking the trainers' dogs for walks, um, mixing the mash up on every Saturday afternoon. But um, like I said, it's got £1.50 a week and that worked out um, uh, uh, f 15 halves of lager. <laughs> so you didn't obviously didn't drink too much because you went on then to be a professional jockey? Well, I, I rode, like I said, I, um, I rode five rings on the flat and... My first ride was six stone nine at uh, fifteen, and I did that with just going out at my breakfast that morning. But I rode the next season. I did seven stone, a little bit of wasting. Uh, the next season I did seven two, wasting hard. And the last season I rode, I did seven four, but um, that was wasting very very hard. And your weight would then go up to eight stone afterwards. And then I went to, I left Regis then, um, went to a man called Monty Stevens, who I'd ridden a winner for. And um, unfortunately, I couldn't control my weight there. My weight went up to about eight seven. Um, always struggling to do the weight. And in those days, you couldn't be a flat jockey at eight seven. Uh, seven stone was still the minimum weight. So um, obviously, my opportunities dried up a little bit, and that's what made me turn to jumping. So do you think that if your weight hadn't been a problem, you'd have you'd have carried on as a jockey a bit longer on the flat? If I'd been good enough, um, that was the day before agents. Um, 
I mean, the agents, jockeys' ages have totally changed how uh, trainers book riders nowadays, you know. Right, okay. So then you retired in 89 from the saddle? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I after I left uh, Monty Stevens's, I went to David Barron's, which um, was a very barren, barren time in my life. I think I had about, oh, I had about 30 rides, I suppose, all together in two years there. Uh, didn't ride many for Barron's, got a few outside rides, permit holders, people like that. And um, I was going nowhere there at all. So I um, saw an advert. No, I think I advertised advertised myself in the Racing Post or Sporting Life. And um, a trainer called Dougie Marks uh, said to come up and see him. So I went to see Dougie Marks. Now, Dougie was a really good trainer, but he was also a comedian. Um, good fun to work for. I only spent a couple of months there, but um, learned a fair bit from Dougie. Um, mostly to keep your horses happy. I had a couple of rides for him, but didn't really take off really. He only had a small jumping team. He was mostly a flat trainer. But I went to a man called Michael Chapman um, in Market Harbour. And uh, he only had about 10 horses, but he went there. Uh, I was stable jockey, head lad, head muckerader as well, to be honest. But um, it was one of those jobs where you learnt on your feet. Um, I probably learnt as much about how to how to sort of survive in a yard really um and it wasn't a bad grounding because the the, the jockey who replaced me there was carl burke right so we often joked didn't do us any harm working on mr chapman so when when you um eventually retired you went to work with other trainers originally no no not really no what happened i was um ended up working for martin pipe and martin only had about 10 horses then and only about four, four or five in training. I had a couple of rides from freelancing before that. I went there and um, Martin was just getting going then. Um, he had a very good head lad called Dennis Dummett, who um, basically taught Martin everything about horses really. And um, it's a funny connection because Dennis Dummett actually learned his trade with Gerald Cottrell. Right. And uh, he was at Gerald's for many years and then he went to Martin's. Anyway, I was there for uh, two seasons uh, Martin String had taken off by then, maybe two and a half years I was there probably, and I'd ridden a few winners for Martin, and um, and then Paul Leach had come on the scene, he was riding everything, and my rides were a bit, I wasn't getting so many rides there, so I left him and went freelance after that, and then I, I, I was freelance for the rest of my career really. Um, I actually got, got more, I lost my claim through age, but I rode more winners with no claim than I rode with a claim. Right. So that's quite good. So had, had Martin Pipes started this red revolutionary type of training, the, the intervals and that sort of thing at that point? Uh, not so... Well, yes, he did. It was by accident, really. Um, Martin was very lucky. I mean, his, his father... Um, they had a blank canvas there when they started. And um, the plan was originally to put a, a large oval gallop in. And the first part of the scheme was a, a four and a half furlong straight up a hill and the yard was so successful training up the hill that the um the plans were abandoned for the rain gallop right. but um and, and what martin did he he trained with the professionalism of a flat trainer um i saw him at the time reg acres really good trainer reg was and um when i went to martin's first of all it was a very small setup and all the horses had nicknames I asked him what the horses, what were their racing names. I wanted to look up their form. He said, "What do you want to know? What do you need to know that for?" You know, 
but he was very secretive, but very intelligent person, you know, I mean, he, and what Martin would do, he would, um, when I first went there, all he did the first few weeks was ask me how Reg Akers did things. And he had a great thirst for knowledge. That's what's made him good. He's, he takes everything in and, and keeps the good bits and probably even tries out the bad bits to make sure they're no good. But he was very, very thorough in his uh, training of horses. Okay, so you would have had quite a few ideas from different trainers when you took out your license in uh, trainer's license in late '89. Yeah, I was very lucky. I worked for a lot of good trainers and bad ones, <laughs> and um, I could, you know, I try to train every horse individually. I mean, that's one thing about our yard. If you look through our history, I've trained winners from five furlongs to four and a half miles, and um, two-year-olds to thirteen-year-olds. And that's quite unusual for a trainer. And even now, although we specialise on the flat, really, we have the odd jumper about. But my horses win over all distances, all grounds, and all disciplines. So I'm quite uh, unique in that way. Now, that's interesting. You say that you know you you have you're predominantly a flat trainer. So why we're in the heart of jump racing country, really? So why why did that? Did you go that way? Well, it, it's by chance, really. I mean, when you're a struggling jockey. Um, See all the all the top jockeys, they they spend all their time at the races and might ride out a bit, but the uh, the second jockeys at yards they tend to work in the yard and they probably learn more horse husbandry than the top jockeys. Um, a lot of the good trainers were not particularly successful jo jockeys, but they were good riders. Um, I mean anybody who rides jumping for five or six years, he's a good rider. He wouldn't survive else. I mean my best ever season was only eleven winners and I think a hundred and. 80 rides a season so you can see it wasn't I didn't make a fortune out of being a jockey but I did learn how to survive in a yard and how to train horses. And then you didn't have to wait long to train your first winner. Well what happened I rented the yard from Axminster Carpets and they had a one or two horses themselves in the company name and Simon Duckfield the MD he had half a dozen horses as well he had some at Gerald's uh, some at David Ellsworth's and he sent some to me and we were lucky I had horses that came to me who'd had a disappointing season before and they dropped to a nice handicap mark and I was able to um, get them fit and well, had a winter off. And a winter off will often cure a lot of, lot of problems with horses. So I was able to come back with, with a couple of well handicapped horses and we had 12 winners that first season. And that really took off. And then I won with a good hurdler called Jailbreaker, won the good hurdle race at Newbury. And um, we had a great start the first 12 months. And basically, for the first um, 10 years, I was probably dual purpose. Um, and then Law Kintyre came along at a good time because we were starting to lose horses at the time, recession had bit in, and we won our first super sprint. And that was a real turning point, really, that made me go more flat racing. Okay, now you mentioned that all these horses that you had in the early days were well handicapped. Were you, uh, were you interested in betting? Was it a gambling yard in those um, days? Some of my owners like to bet. Um, most owners are do like a bet their own horses they're not massive they they like to know when they got the best chances um, but generally speaking we're not a gambling yard as such um, most gambling yards burn brightly to start with then flicker out right okay now another one that highlighted your uh, your skills as a trainer was sergeant Cecil. yeah he was a lovely horse uh, now there we are another story i mean he was with, with another trainer first of all and um the owner lost lost patience with that trainer but the trainer all he ever did was look after the horse um 
bring him along nicely when he was a young backward two-year-old and I was lucky to take on a horse that had been well handled for the next stage of his career and uh, when we got sergeant he was only rated 63 and it took me probably 10 races to win a race with him and uh, we had seven seconds in that time but he eventually started to win we learned the best way to ride him he, he was a horse that had to come late and he loved overtaking tired horses and he'd really float fly then and like I say we were lucky he won the treble he won the um, Pittman's Derby Ebor and the Cesarich in one year right there you you corrected me earlier when I said you had 600 winners you had 697 yeah I had a count up the other day we need three more to get the 700 right so what has been your highlight so far as a trainer well obviously the first first big win was the super sprint with Lokin Tire and then probably um, Sergeant Cecil came along um, when he won the Cadron Group 1 Cadron in France on Arc Day that was a hell of a thing that was to win a Group 1 you know um, not many trainers win a Group 1. Okay we talked in the first part about the, the highlights and uh, your sort of the way you've come up as a trainer in, looking back now in the 30 years since you've been training <coughs> excuse me how much have things changed in the way things are done? Well, I think on the whole, trainers are more professional now than they've ever been. Uh, they've had to be. I mean, um, when I started training, most of the trainers were um, playboy trainers, really. I suppose you know they they were they came from wealthy families, and training was a was an enjoyable pastime. Uh, but nowadays, the young people coming into training are really well prepared for it. Um, they they've probably got good backing. Um, I started training with um, three second-hand wheelbarrows <laughs> and a rented yard. Anyway, um, but against that, um, there were more staff about. When I, was, when I was an apprentice, there was more staff about. And gradually, it's become harder to get good staff. Uh, I've been very lucky. I, have, I do have fantastic staff. But the industry has suffered from lack of good staff over the last 15 years, probably. Okay, now one of the stories, and one of the, I would imagine one of the stories that keeps the hope alive for a lot of people on limited budgets is Betty's Hope winning the Super Sprint. Um, tell us about that that story. Well, um, I always like buying two-year-olds or yearlings because it's the only way you can get a nice horse cheaply. Uh, we've had some really bargains over the years, you know. Anyway, my wife and I went to Ascot. There was a, two, a yearling set at Ascot and um, I went there hoping I might be able to pick up a few owners if they hadn't sold their horses. And we were looking around and... Um, the market was down, really, really down, you know, and uh, there were some really lovely horses going around for nothing, really. And um, it's funny, you can often buy a, a, a cheap filly, you can often run, well, you can buy a well-bred filly that's sound quite cheaply sometimes. If it's a colt, the, a, a nice colt always makes his money, always. Anyway, we saw this little filly walking around and um, spoke to the, liked her, spoke to the breeder, found out he was desperate to sell. So I, um, we followed it in the ring and um, luckily was able to purchase it for 3000 And then the Super Sprint was worth Well, we, we got her home, never a problem. Uh, easy to break, quiet ride, um, showed ability on the gallops. Uh, we, we got her out really early. She ran the first week of the season at Kempton. Unfortunately, came up against a, a really good filly that went on and won our next three. Um, she was second and we had three seconds with her before she actually won. Um, won a little race at Chepstow, then won a £25,000 nursery at uh, Jelmsford 
and then we just gave her a little break and we ran in a super sprint and um, I had ex-champion jockey on her well, I had the champion jockey actually Sylvester rode her for me give her a great ride and won, won by short head so was it a, a surprise or were you sort of quietly I know you can't be totally confident in a race like that were you quietly confident well, or hopeful it's funny I had another filly in the race Daddy's Diva who was working equally as well or nearly as well well equally yeah she probably we didn't in the camp, we didn't know which one was the best, really, because once you get them fit, you don't try them too hard at home because you just wear them out. Anyway, we had one drawn right on one side and one the other side, and I really wanted to be drawn in the middle. But um, got I mean, both horses were in the betting. They were sort of 14 to 1 each, you know. Both had chances. I mean, there was one horse that was, uh, had about £12 in hand of Richard Farris, and that didn't fire on the day. That was only finished midfield. But our filly with Betty... They pay first 10, you see, so there's a, there's a good chance of a payday. And I was hoping that we would finish in the prize money. Didn't think she'd win. Um, that was beyond our dreams, to be honest. But anyway, she won, won a short head, so everything worked out well. So what was the, invest, what was the initial investment, Betty's? Uh, well, I paid £3,000 for her. Yeah. But it cost us, um, I think, £1,500 to run in the race. But she won 124000 but she's now won nearly 150 now with the other wins. Okay, then we talked earlier about your high, high strike rate, especially given the horses that you're, um, you know, the, the sort of races you have to go in. So how much time would you spend in the form book mapping out races and planning campaigns for your horses? Yeah, hell of a lot, really. Um, it, it's funny, when, you're, when things are going well, your entries just come off the end of the pen. You know, you look look at the races and you make a decision just like that. If you're going for a sticky period, you spend so long procrastinating which race to run in. You often worry too much. But um, making entries is a confidence thing as much as anything. I mean, we run our horses quite a bit. And um, sometimes if they're too high in the handicap, they've got to run regularly to get back down to winning mark. So there's no point in leaving. If you've got a horse that's high in the handicap and he can't win, there's no point in hanging about. You've just got to run him a few times, get him back down again to a winning mark. But I, I do spend a lot of time trying to pick the races. Um, um, James, my son, he's very good on the form book as well. Um, but at the end of the day, often you, you're, you're looking, you try to to run in the race you can win all the time, you know? I mean, nowadays, racing post has got all the form in. I mean, years ago, I used to have three or four film books. Mm. And nowadays those companies have all gone bust because the racing post does it all for you. Yeah. Now you say you've got James and Patrick um, both working here with you at the yard. So yeah, well, James is here. Uh, Patrick's here full-time. He's assistant trainer. Uh, Pat's a really good rider. He's, he was champion amateur uh, the other year on the flat and he's leading, He's joint leader of the championship this year. Um, he's a great asset in the yard. I mean, they've taken the pressure off me. I mean, I've been in racing since I was 15. I've so I've been in racing, what... Um, Oh, 47 years now so um, obviously I don't do quite so much running around as I used to uh, the two boys are taking the pressure off a bit really and James um, he was stable jockey for several years and then stopped riding and went off and did a law degree um, tried, to, tried to be a solicitor for a while found it a bit dreary and has now come back into racing with us again okay now um, I'm led to believe you're investing some of what you won in the Super Sprint in new horses. Well, yes, we've bought, we've bought nine yearlings so far this season, uh, this, this yearling season. Um, 
and I'm going to New Market next week. Hopefully, get a couple more. Uh, we've got reports bought them all to sell again, selling to new owners. Um, so um, yes, we've got quite a few youngsters here for looking for new homes. Now, listen to you talk. You make it sound like it's quite easy. You go and see a nice horse, buy it for three and a half grand or whatever it was, and uh, and then it wins a massive race. I mean, really, it's a lot harder than that, isn't it? And it oh yes, I mean we, you know, I mean it's it's easy to see a nice horse um but it's buying at the right money i mean i can go to the sales and spot a nice horse i mean fun i'm quite unusual in that i don't look in the catalog before i go to the sales too much um i pick out most of mine by eyesight see i like to buy an athlete first then i try to uh to get something that the pedigree suits there's no there's no point you see a lot of trainers they a lot of people can buy it a catalogue and they, they buy a black type, you know, that's the well-bred horses. Or the pe uh, pedigree looks fantastic, I'll buy that. Well, the trouble is a lot of those aren't athletes. Um, we, we, I pride myself on 80% of the ones I buy win. Right, and that's a massive, I would imagine, compared to the majority of people. What, what is it you see? Well, I, I, it... I try and look for an athlete first. Um, and it's, it's got to have good confirmation. The trouble is, if you buy a horse of poor confirmation, that's where it turns a leg in or, in or out, you find it puts um, pressure on its other, the rest of its joints. Um, it's like having a car with uh, a wheel wobble. If you don't get that wobble fixed, that'll eventually damage the bearings all the way up through the suspension and steering. But of course, unfortunately, a racehorse can't be replaced. You can't put a new leg on a horse, you know. So do you buy in the hope that you'll find owners or do you, do you have orders come in or is it a, a bit, of, bit of both really um you don't buy so much on spec nowadays because it's it is harder to sell to new people um the trouble is what's happened the um the top end of the market with the arab, arab sheiks uh play up that is a very strong market if you if you're a breeder and you've got the right ho horse you'll sell it very well but it's the it's the middle market has disappeared a little bit and that's where people like me come along and I've been able to buy recently nicer horses for small money. Okay, now is it a worry across the industry that owners are sort of of the older, in inverted commas, demographic, or is that, you know, is that a worry? Well, I remember when I first went into racing, all the owners I ever, ever rode for were old. You know, they've always been old. Um, and the majority of them are long gone now. Um, it's something I think They've always always on about getting younger people into it, but most people don't go into racehorse ownership until they're into their late late forties. Right. So um, it's not. That's just when people have they've you know they've raised their kids and they've got a few quid to spend and they just go out and enjoy it. Is that is that the sort of thing that happens? I think that's the case. I mean, syndicates are different. A lot of people in syndicates are younger because they they haven't got the money to spend. And they probably come into it. They're, they're probably people who like a bet, uh, enjoy the horses. But um, I think it'd be nice to get more younger people in. But like I say, most most people don't buy racehorses until they stop playing football or cricket themselves. You know, when they can when they do sport themselves, yeah. they tend to do those sort of sports. Is when they get a bit older and they can't do that, they get into something else, spectator sport. You know. Okay. So do you actively? go out there looking for owners do you sort of in a, in a way advertise to get new owners all the time is that a, high, a priority of the yard um i don't think i've ever got an owner through advertising as such um the best way to get owners is to train winners right 
you know. Um, most, it's like, that's the one thing about our business. Um, if you, a racehorse trainer hasn't got a business to sell as such, because in ordinary business, you, you could sell the business and you sell your list of customers to somebody. But in racing training, owners only have it with you because they want to have it with, with that particular trainer. They, it's not, not a yard. They want they, they, they want a relationship with that trainer, you know? Right, okay. So do you, do you sort of encourage the racing clubs, partnership syndicates, or can they be a bit troublesome? What would be the... Um, no, well, no, I mean, I think that's the way forward because uh, it is it is very expensive. We Years ago, um, stable staff weren't particularly well paid. Um, and nowadays, although we would love to pay them more, it's not such a poorly paid job in comparison to what it used to be. But of course, it's made it very expensive to train horses now. Um, the labour has gone up so much and all the other things you have to do. So it, it is expensive to have, a, to have a horse in training. And if you can get people into partnerships, all the, all the better, I think. The old days of people having 10 horses in training are gone, you know. Okay, well, that was going to be one of my, well, my next question was, what are the biggest problems you face? You've already mentioned the staffing. And obviously, paying the staff is it's got more expensive. Is there anything else that you particularly? Um, well, racing's got so big. Um, the worst thing that happened for trainer for we people who work in the industry is Sunday racing. Um, it's great for the spectators and the racecourses, but if you work in the industry, it means you you are working seven days a week, or you could do. But those days are gone now, I'm afraid. Okay, and so would that? Be is that one of the, the next question with the penultimate question um the biggest problems facing racing itself and what are your pet hates if you have any at all well the funding is obviously a problem um the trouble is obviously our money comes from the bookmakers and they're professional people and very clever at their job and um most of the people who have been negotiating have been from our side have been well-meaning amateurs and the bookmakers have, have um, you know, we, we really need to have a new funding system set up because at the moment um, there's been a, a lot of racecourses, well, they'll tell you they're making no money as well, you know, so I don't know what the, question, what the answer is really, but I think things have to change. Okay, and the one that everybody always asks about, the whip. Well, the trouble is the whip. Um, the whip, first of all, makes racing exciting, doesn't it? You know, when you see jockeys going for a finish, um, it adds a crescendo, you know. Um, but of course, the trouble is, it's what other sport can you break the rules at and not get disqualified? So at the moment, you've got jockeys in big races are going over the limit and winning the race. And everyone's being paid out and everyone in, at the time says, oh, well done, great, great race and everything. And of course, then when it goes back, you look at the video, you always oh, hit it too many times. And the trouble is, it happens when, when jockeys are under great pressure to win races, especially big races, um, they, will, they will unfortunately break the rules. I think you've got to bring in new rules where if a, if a jockey does do that, he probably doesn't ride for three months. That sounds harsh, um, especially the second time they do it. And you'll find if jockeys get suspended for three months, they'll stop riding. They'll, they'll ride within the rules. Um, all the other ways you could say disqualify the horse um, that is another possibility I think you must think of but of course that, then you'll be accused of getting a horse beat on purpose by hitting it too many times and um, 
helps you open, open up another can of worms. But I do think we've got to bring in harsher penalties for people who break the rules. I'll never forget when the whip rules first came in, I had a horse to finish second in a £50,000 race. Um, and the winning jockey broke the rules and he kept the race and my horse, only beaten a short head, um, lost the race. And that did annoy me at the time. And um, I've been saying that you know, the penalty should be harsher for years. And I think, I think you'll find in the next few months they will be. As finally, as a trainer, you've done uh, very well. Have you got any unfulfilled ambitions that you've got your eyes set on to uh, try and achieve? Well, I'd really like, um, obviously everyone wants a top class horse again, don't they, you know? I'd love to have a, a really good two-year-old that I could take on and be a classic horse. Very unlikely, probably. And um, and I'd also like, if one of my decent stayers uh, gailed in, I'd quite like a crack at some of the big hurdle races again, you know? Or chase again, even, you know? Uh, I've got one hurdler at the moment, um, Champagne Champ. He's quite a high-class horse. Um, he should pick up a good couple of novice chases this year. So the National Hunt still, flame still burns in me a little bit. Brilliant, Rob Moonman. Thank you very much. You can follow Star Sports on Twitter at starsports underscore bet, our Facebook page at starsportsbet, and also view all our latest videos on YouTube at starsports. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.